0: choose to engage in hope together, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ and the hope of justice in the midst of challenge, and I hope BWA Baptists will continue to choose to engage in hope together.
1: Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way Editor and President Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at WordandWay.org. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Baptist without an adjective. In this episode, we're going to hear a sermon by Elijah Brown, General Secretary of the Baptist World Alliance. Now, if you missed it, our regular episode this week featured an interview with Elijah, and so I really encourage you to go back and check that out. That was episode 72. I had a chance to talk with Elijah last month when he was in St. Louis at Webster Groves Baptist Church for ChurchNet's spring gathering. And while he was there, he led a breakout session and then he offered the sermon for the main event. And so we're going to play that sermon here because he tells some more stories about some of the challenges as well as some of the incredible growth among global Baptists around the world. So I hope you enjoy this message by Elijah Brown of the Baptist World Alliance.
0: Thank you for the opportunity to be here with all of you. Thank you, ChurchNet, for being such a longstanding and key partner in the life of the Baptist World Alliance. Because you at ChurchNet partnered and gave, this last year, the Baptist World Alliance funded evangelism grants around the world where 2,000 people gave their life to Jesus Christ. To stand with refugees and those who've experienced natural disasters with humanitarian aid in 16 different countries. To advocate on behalf of hundreds of Baptist churches that face closure due to their religious convictions, and to launch an online training program called Horizons to help train children and youth leaders that already has 250 students enrolled. Church, that you are having a global impact. Because you gave, thousands of lives around the world were impacted by Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for giving. Thank you for serving on committees and commissions of the BWA and helping to shape a global Baptist movement. ChurchNet, we need you. And I'm so grateful that you are part of our BWA family that now has 239 member bodies, conventions and unions, and 125 countries and territories representing 47 million Baptists. ChurchNet, thank you. Now our theme this evening is to consider again the biblical call to engage in hope and with hope. And let us, as we do so, consider the testimony of two individuals who found hope in the most unusual circumstances, two individuals who found life in the midst of death, two individuals who found new purpose at the cross of Jesus. Let's call these two individuals the Easter Witnesses. Now in the scripture, the story is not given very many speaking lines. Their words may be few, but their actions are clear as a challenge to join them as Easter Witnesses, to join them as Witnesses who engage in hope and with hope. And at that Easter moment, as you know, there were those whose acts of injustice nailed Jesus to the cross. Those who passed and mocked. Those who watched and wept. Those disciples whose lack of courage led them to turn away, to flee, even for some to deny their identification with Jesus Christ. And then there were two. Two not 20, not 40, not hundreds in some mass movement, there were two Easter witnesses who engaged in hope and with hope as witness for justice and for the sake of Jesus Christ. But first the context. Now we do not often think about Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion in the light of injustice, but we could consider the context. At the time of his arrest, Jesus was praying it seems the forces of evil and injustice love to attack when a church is gathered to pray, gathered to worship, when a church is living out its witness in grace and truth. Jesus was praying, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the special temple guard were sent out on a secret mission, armed with clubs and swords, expecting violence. This was the Prince of Peace, but they came armed with full weaponry, These are the moments when the forces of death seem to be in the ascendancy. These are the moments when the crowds cry out with injustice. These are the moments when all seems lost, when worlds seem to be collapsing and the air is heavy to breathe. These are the moments when even believers in Jesus are tempted to pull out their sword and lash out with whatever power they've been given to maintain their privilege and their position. These are the moments when so many disciples choose to flee. It was night and they took Jesus to the house of the high priest. They didn't take Jesus to a cell where he could spend the night while they called together the Jewish court of law. They did not take Jesus to the temple or to the hall of the hewn stones, the building of the Sanhedrin where they always met when the court was in session. They did not take Jesus to any courtroom or even gather all of the court officials. They took Jesus to a private house where a select group with false witnesses had already gathered. What have we learned a defendant was arrested while praying, not taken to a courtroom but to a private house where a select group of only some judges waited in the middle of the night with false witnesses already in place. This was structured violence that turned truth into a mockery. The ones who sent Jesus to His death at the hands of the government were a pre-selected collection of corrupt elites pursuing their own agenda. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was an act of political and religious oppression. It is in this context that two witnesses step forward. And friends, as we gather today, this is the context that forms the backdrop for so many individuals all around the world. Would you do me a favor in just a moment? I'll need your help. Scholars at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, in collaboration with other genocide experts. Maintain a dynamic list where government-sponsored mass killing up to the point of genocide has greater than a 50% likelihood to occur. Now, if you take this list of possibilities where genocide is a reality and you merge that with DWA global membership data, do you know what the result would be? Do you know how many Baptists would live in these contexts? Could you would you do me a favor and if you're able with this? half of the room stand to your feet. The answer is 40%. 40% of all BWA Baptists live in a context where government sponsored mass state killing up to the point of genocide is a real possibility. And as you stand, you represent The Baptists around the world living in a context where the human rights situation has so deteriorated, the violence against citizens has so escalated, the religious freedom restrictions have become so tight that your daily reality is impacted by the very possibility that your government could be actively planning to kill you. Up to the point of genocide. Almost one out of all two Baptists in the world. What would be the impact? How would ministry change if your government could sponsor the bombing of your church and seeking your eradication? Perhaps for some of this room, you know that reality. And we see you and acknowledge you. For those who are sitting, it's our responsibility. As we see our brothers and sisters, how should we respond? when we see individuals who are targeted for their faith, shot at, bombed out, expelled, or human dignity and rights are stripped away, what is our responsibility? And tonight I invite all of us to join the BWA to live as Easter witnesses who choose hope, and with hope you may be seated. For it was this context of injustice in which the bruised and bloody body of Jesus breathed his last breath. It was this context of injustice that forms the backdrop of the stand of two individuals. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42 reads this. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were individuals who knew that one must choose to stand. In the midst of injustice, in the midst of death, they became the Easter forerunners, witnesses to a different reality. There, with the smashed body of Jesus slain on the cross, two stepped forward and confronted the forces of death and injustice, forces that still roam far too freely in our world today. There at the foot of the cross, in that in-between moment, in that hard moment when no Easter resurrection had been guaranteed and no success could be counted on, two steps forward, just two. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was, quote, waiting for the kingdom of God and had not consented to the decisions and actions of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is introduced to us in John chapter three, also a member of the Sanhedrin and one who had come to Jesus at night without anyone else knowing. Who were Joseph and Nicodemus? Well, these were influential individuals. These were solid, conservative, religious people. They had encountered Jesus, but they didn't want anyone to know. Friends, I know that could be true in my life. I could know about external conformity without internal transformation. I can be familiar with the words of the Bible without implementing the actions of the Bible. These were individuals who knew about the performance of religion, which is what makes John 19 so surprising. Where we read that Joseph asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited Jesus at night. Several words stand out to me, secretly, at night. These were individuals whose classmates and whose work colleagues had no idea about their faith. These were individuals whose neighbors had no idea about their faith. Now, everyone knew they were faithful at the synagogue and they were, you know, good people, but their faith in Jesus was a secret. Yet, this was the moment when they chose to stand. When they said, We will not be silent any longer, we will not be secret at night witnesses any longer. We will not be passive participants in the face of government domination any longer. We will not bow down and cower before the tyranny of injustice and oppression any longer. It is our time and we choose to stand as public disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what they are doing, is it not? When they go before Pilate and the Jewish leaders and they publicly claim the body of Jesus for themselves? when they publicly stand for Jesus who's been slain on the cross? And what a moment to stand. Abandoned by his disciples, plotted against by the religious leaders, betrayed by a member of his inner circle, disowned and denied by one of his closest friends, hammered to the wound of the cross by the government, if there was ever a moment accurately described as God-forsaken, this would be that moment. Jesus himself cried out in a loud voice, Eli, 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 the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the God-forsaken moment. The forces of evil had gathered. The savior of the world hung in the silence of the dead. The most powerful army in the world and guarded the tomb. The government had approved. The religious leaders had approved. The crowds had approved. And yet, two stepped forward? This is the moment. No guarantee. No assurance. No empty, resurrected tomb. Nobody could blame these two individuals if they stood with a silent majority. What good could they do? What good can That is the lie that the three days between the cross and the empty tomb wants you to believe. That is the lie the forces of oppression want you to believe. That is the lie that flows through our world whispering in our minds that resurrected life will never happen. But we are here today to say that we will be like the two. We will be like the two and engage in hope and with hope. You know, they took Jesus's body and laid him in the grave. Jesus rested with the dead. Jesus is with those in complete darkness. The darkness of those who lost their way, the darkness of cities blackened out, the darkness of those who've been thrown into the bottom of shipping containers, hell holes, and forgotten jail cells all over the world. Jesus is with those who have lost everything and everyone. Jesus is with those betrayed by the leaders who promised to be friends. Jesus is with those who gathered peacefully but were attacked by officers the government had installed and had weaponized. Jesus! is with the crucified people. And thank God that Easter is coming. Thank God that Jesus did not remain in the grave but was resurrected. Thank God that in Jesus the penalty of death has been defeated. The chains of death have been shattered and the forces of death have been made temporary. The guards at the tomb will be cast aside. The stone will be rolled away and the resurrected light of new life will come shining forth. Will we hear that call? Will we hear Jesus's invitation to stand in spiritual and physical death and engage in hope and with hope. I think about a woman I met named Adeline. Adeline lives in Lebanon and the roots of her story began in 1990. Adeline was a young mom and pregnant with her second child. Lebanon was in a war with Syria, which had been militarily occupying Lebanon for 14 years. And Adeline and her family had been captured And they were lined up in an execution line. And the firing squad had raised their guns and pointed them at this family of three who were present and one that was on the way. Madeline closed her eyes and prayed. Prayed. not for deliverance of her words. she said, death was certain. She said, I prayed that I would pass quickly without having to watch my husband and my son on either side of me suffer their death. At that moment of death hanging heavy in the air, guns raised, caught. At the last possible moment, a Lebanese tank emerged as if from nowhere and fired a shell that decimated the soldiers and sent shrapnel flying in every direction, total destruction except for three holding hands. Death all around them, but they stood there without even a single scratch. Then she said, that's when the real work began. Despite physical liberation, she said, I had a hard choice. Hatred. Hatred towards Syrians. She described how for six years she prayed and fasted every week, asking for removal of the hatred she felt towards those who had almost murdered her family. And as war over these last few years has turned away from Lebanon, and engulfed Syria, and now more than a Syrian refugees, a million Syrian refugees have poured into Lebanon. Adeline found that her hard work of introspection led to a transformation that not only set her heart free from the hatred that had pulled at her heart, but now enabled her to work for a Baptist organization actively supporting Syrian refugees. She described how her heart moved from hatred to empathy to hesitation to wholehearted engagement and support of those refugees. To choose to engage with hope in the light of the cross is to face hard choices. Choices that force us to move beyond the fear and hesitancy common to all, to move beyond religious stereotyping and to build new relationships even in strained uncertainty. These were individuals who had been secret at night disciples, but something happened. They allowed Jesus, even in his death, to move them from the silent majority to a transformed minority who proclaimed hope in the light of the cross. As their actions remind us, living as people of hope involves both a public proclamation of our faith in Jesus Christ and a public stand for justice. Joseph and Nicodemus were moved to publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus before their colleagues, before their neighbors, before the governmental leaders, before the culture, they move from silent witnesses to public proclaimers of their faith in Jesus. Are we doing the same? I confess I'm not a national evangelist. and not always easy for me. But the call of personal evangelism still applies. This year I've been praying that the Lord would make me more sensitive and give me greater boldness in publicly sharing my faith wherever I might go. I'm so grateful that so many Baptists around the world continue to hold on to evangelism. In February, I was in Bangladesh and had the privilege of meeting a church planter named Reverend Martin Bouchard de Swas. And he's, I mean, he's like a modern day Paul. We were sitting there together and I said, well, brother, tell me some of your story. He said, well, I plant churches. I said, well, tell me about one of those churches. He said, well, I've been planting churches for 40 years and I've planted 60 churches. All over the world. The Lord is doing an incredible work, a global movement of good news. In the last 10 years, the global BWA family has grown 31%, from 36 million to 47 million. Now, of course, that's different region by region. In the last 10 years, in Europe, Baptists have declined 7%, and Baptists in North America have declined 6%. I know it's shocking news to say that Baptists in Europe and North America are struggling. Sorry to be the bearer of such new news. But Baptists elsewhere are having a different experience. In the last 10 years, Baptists in Asia have grown 6%. In the Caribbean, 43%. In Latin America, 33%. And in the last 10 years, Baptists in Africa have grown 161%. In the last 10 years, BWA Baptists in Africa have grown from 7 million to almost 19 million. The Spirit of the Lord is moving in powerful ways. And we give thanks for Baptists in Africa, Asia, Caribbean, the Latin America, and all the Baptists in every place that are leading in mission and evangelism. What about this last year? What were the fastest growing Baptist conventions in this last year using percentage? Well, here are the top 10 fastest growing Baptist conventions in this last year. Number 10, Turkey, 16 15%. 9, Congo, 16%. 8, Belgium, 17% growth. Number seven, the only one in North America, the Zoning Baptist Churches of America, 17% growth. What does it mean that last year in North America, the fastest growing Baptist convention in the United States was made up of refugees and immigrants? How should that influence our discourse around these subjects? Number six, the Philippine Baptist Church is 20% growth. Number five, the Baptist Convention of Tanzania, 28% growth. Number four, the Faith Evangelical Baptist Church of South Sudan, 42% growth. Number three, the Ethiopian Addis Kadan Baptist Church, 46% growth. Number two, the Reformed Baptist Convention of Rwanda, 50%. I guess the Lord willed it. Number one, The Cameroon Baptist Convention, which in one year had 85% growth. I want to come back next year to ChurchNet and celebrate 85% growth. Six of the top 10 fastest growing conventions in the world last year were in Africa, including each of the top five. We give thanks for all these Baptists and we ask, will we do the same? In a world where there are still 3.1 billion people who are unreached with the gospel, where many have lost hope, we still have a calling to share the hope of, Jesus, of the gospel together. We can be like Joseph and Nicodemus and engage in sharing the gospel of hope from our neighborhood to the nations. Joseph and Nicodemus chose to engage in hope. They offered a public identification with Jesus and they took a public stand for justice. Now, to engage in a public stand for justice requires courage. Mark 1543 says Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly and asked for Jesus' father. Joseph went boldly, convinced that the kingdom of God was more important than personal comfort and well-being. The kingdom of God propelled him to action. In doing so, these two individuals have nothing to gain and seemingly everything to lose. By stepping forward as members of the Sanhedrin and claiming Jesus' body, they are publicly rejecting the decision made by that Sanhedrin. They are rejecting the actions of Pilate and their powerful colleagues, just after these same individuals killed a man under false pretenses. They are rejecting rhetoric that prizes security over human dignity, rejecting the lie that one can simply say, I washed my hands and I have no personal responsibility. These Easter, Easter witnesses chose to engage in hope and together. And we too can hear Jesus' calling and stand in the midst of death and crucifixion. There were many who followed Jesus while he was living. Thank God, millions have followed Jesus after his resurrection. But as far as we know, it was only these two who chose to publicly align themselves with Jesus for the first time during that three-day gap. Even in his death, Jesus was called forward, new believers. As Mark Luther King Jr. wrote, there comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, an expression of man's terrible sinfulness, and injustice must be exposed with all of the tension it's exposing creates. In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, two extremists for immorality fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love and thereby rose above his environment. Can I suggest that there at the foot of the cross, Joseph and Nicodemus joined Jesus as extremists for love and justice. They chose to engage in hope, even in the midst of injustice. And is there any doubt that injustice continues to permeate our world? That we too can be called to stand where there's been death and tragedy and point to Jesus? With some 60 million refugees in the world, there are more refugees today than at any other point since World War II. With four declared famines last year, there were more people facing famine than at any other point since World War II. The specter of genocide continues to haunt, most notably in the declared genocide against Christians, Yazidis, and other religious minorities in Iraq. I remain deeply concerned about Rohingya Muslims from Myanmar, where hundreds of thousands have fled as refugees in what the United Nations calls presently the most persecuted people in the world. Yemen has faced the largest cholera outbreak in the history of the world, while simultaneously the United States is providing support for bombing that is having horrific civilian casualties. In our news, war and the rumors of war seem to abound every day. Scholars tell us there are 25 million people enslaved today, illegal weapons continue to surge, there are still far too many who die from diseases for which there is a cure and a medication, there are still far too many without access to clean water, far too many who face discrimination, marginalization, racism, torture, and unjust imprisonment. How will we respond for Baptists in Venezuela? As the country disintegrates, inflation skyrockets to 12,000%, and children are starving to death. How will we respond for the Baptists arrested in Russia for sharing their faith and find on average the equivalency of two weeks of their salary, or for the seminary which was closed for 60 days just this year? How will we respond for Baptists in Bolivia who last year saw legislation that would make evangelism and taking a friend to church? A criminal offense punishable by five to ten years in prison. How do we respond for Baptists in Sudan, where Baptist churches have been bulldozed to destruction and just over the last four, three, or four days experienced a coup? They're already on their third leader since that coup, four days ago. And how do we respond for for bombs which are still dropped in the Nuba mountains of Sudan, killing Christian and non-Christian alike? How will I respond to the 20 Baptist churches in the occupied territories of eastern Ukraine that were closed by the government this last month? Where I was told this last week that three pastors are being held in prison. Where last year one church leader told myself and others from the BWA who were visiting that region on a solidarity visit that the persecution they are facing today is worse than anything they faced during the times of communist Union. How will we respond to the elder in Nigeria who stood and with tears in his eyes begged, Pray for us! We are surviving by eating grass. How will we respond to the rising violence of the Middle Belt of Nigeria that last year saw more than 5,000 people killed, 90% of whom were Christian? How will we respond for weaker Muslims on the day of Muslims? Tibetan Buddhists and all those around the world who face trauma, how will we respond to the crises in our cities? Tonight will you choose with the BWA to engage in hope and with hope? You can make a difference. We can make a difference. Two years ago, the two Baptist pastors in Myanmar were arrested for telling the truth that the government had bombed and destroyed a church. It was a Catholic church, and the Baptists talked about it. So the government rebuilt the Catholic church and arrested the two Baptist pastors and put them in prison. One was 65, one was 35, and they were given uh, three years and five years respectively in prison. Well, I was sharing this story in uh, northeastern Canada, and an older woman came up to me afterwards, and she said that she was the full-time caregiver for her husband and rarely able to leave the house, but she'd been able to come to the National Assembly of that particular Baptist group, and she said, well, what can I do? I don't even leave the house. And I said, well, you can pray, you can write letters. She said, all right, I'll commit to doing both. And she started writing letters to her elected representative again, and again, and again, and again. And she eventually forwarded me an email from her elected representative, thanking her for repeatedly raising the issue of the two Baptist pastors in Myanmar. And then he had forwarded all of that information to Canada's foreign minister. And this last spring without any explanation or any warning, those two pastors were released without any other notice. And though we may never know, a sudden release of two Baptist pastors in Myanmar may very well owe that release in part to a persistent woman in Eastern Canada who can barely even leave her house. We can choose to engage in hope together. The hope of salvation in Jesus Christ and the hope of justice in the midst of challenge. And I hope BWA Baptists will continue to choose to engage in hope together. We can pray, we can give. Next May we we'll we're launching an initiative called Go 2020, where I'm asking all BWA Baptists to use the month of May 2020 to share the gospel boldly. What would happen if in one month All 47 million Baptists around the world shared the gospel with at least one other person. And then we shared the good news with one another. I hope you'll join us in July 2020. I've already mentioned it to Brian several times, but I'll mention it to you as well. In July 2020, we'll be having our BWA Congress in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. We need you there. When we do the roll call of nations and conventions and unions and here come the Africans and the Asians and the Latin Americans, well, we need people from Missouri. We need you. We have the opportunity to be like these two Easter witnesses and to engage again in hope together. The scriptures are filled with men and women of courage and conviction who chose to engage their situation with hope. They took the first step. So can we. You know, Abraham did not know that he would become the father of many nations when he took that first step of obedience in a multinational church. Joseph did not know that he would help alleviate physical hunger in the midst of scarcity when he took that first step towards a prison. Moses did not know that he would set a people free and that he would build a set of laws that gave everyone, rich and poor, male and female, access to justice through a fair legal system when he took that first step towards Egypt. Gideon did not know that he would rescue his nation and transform his country for justice, peace, and prosperity when he took that first step out of a cave. Ruth did not know the lineage of leaders she would produce when she took that first step to help an older mother-in-law in need. Hannah did not know that her child would become the great anointer of Israel's great king David when she took that first step in prayer. David did not know his legacy when he took that first step onto the field with Goliath. Jeremiah did not know that his words of justice would span thousands of years when he took that first step to speak what was burning inside his heart. Esther did not know that she would prevent a genocide when she took that first step to raising the issue with the government of her day. Nehemiah did not know that he would help restore peace by rebuilding the walls of a city under siege when he took that first step in red news from a troubled area. Stephen did not know that his martyrdom would help spread the church far beyond the nation of Israel when he took that first step of agreeing to serve food to a group of widows. Peter did not know that he would become the rock when he took that first step out of the boat and into some troubled waters. Paul did not know the churches he would plant and the many who would respond to Jesus when he took that first step on his first missionary journey. Joseph and Nicodemus could never have known that they would become powerful Easter witnesses to the most transformative story in the history of the world when they took that first step towards Pilate and their public proclamation and public stand for justice. And I wonder how many first steps are in this room tonight. For there are many Friday and Saturday who know the agony of the crucifixion, know the defeat of death, Experiencing the pain of persecution, have not the hope of the gospel. And what we need tonight are some Sunday morning, Easter believing, empty tomb declaring, following Jesus' people. The scriptures are clear. We can engage in hope together. BWA Baptist, the question is this Will you?
1: You can learn more about the Baptist World Alliance at bwanet.org. You can learn more about us at WordAndWay.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. If you have comments or feedback, please email me at bkaler at WordAndWay.org. And if you'd like to support this program, you can head to WordAndWay.org and hit the Donate button. Whatever you give there will help the production of this podcast, as well as our monthly magazine and our website. Thanks for listening.